Good morning. It's been a long time since I've been here, and I'm very thankful to uh, Pastor Josiah for allowing me to uh, come back and share. It's kind of like a new church, you know, it's an old church and a new church, and I'm like, I know a lot of people, and there's a lot of people I don't know. Um, But for those who've been here the whole time, I just want to say thanks for praying for us. Uh, While Marguerite and I were in Hamilton, spent a year at Philpott Memorial Church, where I had spent 12 years before. It was kind of funny to go back. You can't step into the same stream twice, right? And so anyhow, that's uh, what we tried to do. We're thankful for what God's done, and we're happy to be home. I kept saying, and, and Mike is my witness, that this was our home church, okay? We were away on leave for a while. It's our home church. It's where our heart is. It's where our life is. And and so it's just good to be back this morning. And we're so excited to see what God is doing in this place. And, and we trust that you are too. It's nice to watch some of you have to move seats that you sat in for like 25 years. Right? It's really cool. Uh, to come in on a Sunday morning and say, uh-oh, my seat's gone. What do I do now? I'm so happy to see Brian this morning move up here and uh, take the front row. I've never seen you right here before, Brian, so be careful. You're really, really close. Anyhow, uh, actually, Steve stole my message. I wanted to preach on truth this morning because when Josiah said, hey, we're doing a series on God, Lou. What do you want, what do you want to speak on? I said, I want to speak on God and truth. I have a funny experience with truth. My, my background's in philosophy, so if I make a few weird comments, you'll, you'll forgive me for that, right? But my mind immediately goes back to an essay by Francis Bacon entitled On Truth, where he says something like this. What is truth, the jesting pilot said, and would not stay for an answer? Now, Steve's already touched on the political, interesting promises that are being made. I don't care whether you look north of the border or south of the border. It's hard to tell where more lying is taking place at this point in time, right? So I'm not going to comment any more on that. I want to get to this issue. Truth has been a problem ever since humanity was on the face of the earth. You can't get any further than... Genesis chapter 3, before you deal with the problem of truth, right? Now, now the, the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. He was sneaky. And we're told that he deceived Eve. He begins asking questions like, are you sure that God told the truth? Are you really sure that you'll die if you eat this stuff? Are you really sure that God wasn't trying to withhold something good from you? Like if you ate of this tree, surely you'd be a better person, right? I mean, desire to make you wise. It's the knowledge of, of good and evil. In fact, the devil goes on to say, you will be like God. One lie after another. She's deceived Adam eats, and the question of truth begins. The early Greeks thought a lot about what is truth. For example, one man by the name of Protagoras, about 400 B.C., says this, Man is the measure of all things. Of what is, that it is. And of what is not, that it is not. I mean, man is the focal point of truth, and uh, of truth, and 
it gets worse because kind of a sidekick of his, a guy by the name of Gorgias, says this, nothing is. If anything is, it can't be known. If anything is and can be known, it can't be communicated. How would you like to live in that world? First of all, it can't even be true because if you can't know anything, how does he know that? But And then you have, of course, Aristotle, who's trying to straighten out this whole mess by saying there has to be an anchor somewhere for truth. There just simply, it just can't simply be that man is the measure because where does that lead? There's got to be a basis for truth. And so Aristotle comes up with this definition. He says, to say of what is, to say of what is that it is, is true. Well, uh, and of what is not, that is not. It's true. But to say of what is that it isn't, and of what isn't or is not that it is, that's false. You'll get your head around it in a little while. We won't leave the slide up that long for to have a brain freeze or something this morning. But basically what he's saying is, listen, there's got to be something out there on which truth rests. Right? There has to be. But the thing is, as you think about that, and you think about this whole matter of truth, you have another problem because people are going to say to us today, or they're going to say to me, not to you, Lou, give us a break. Okay. Do we really need to study dead men 2,300 years dead? What do they have to say to us today? A lot more than you might think. Take, for example, the question of gender. Hot question in our society, right? If man is the measure is true, then you can, whatever you feel you are, you are. But if data is the measure, scientific data, then maybe that's not true. Let's take, for example, the issue of abortion. If man is the measure of all things, and that that thing that is in a woman's womb is something like a pimple or a toenail, she can just squeeze it or cut it off or do whatever she wants. If man's the measure. But what if that thing inside the mother's womb isn't actually just a part of the mother, but has its own identity? You see what I'm saying? These issues that we want to blow off about truth, they're the very things that are making Jordan, um, Jordan, uh, what is his name, um, Peterson, um, such an important guy. Because he's raising these questions every day. And there are questions that you and I face, and there are questions we need answers to. I mean, after all, what is truth? And now, we live in the postmodern world. I mean, you, you do understand that we are evolving into God, don't you? Yeah? Oh, you, you don't read Harari. You need to read Harari. Homo Deus. We're going to be God. We're only a little, maybe, maybe another three, four hundred years from now, we'll have eternal life. You won't even have to get frozen to be unfrozen to have eternal life. It's a strange world in which we live. And as you think about this postmodern mindset, 
If you think the truth I was just talking about is difficult, think of this. You live in a world where your mind is conditioned. See, You never really see the truth. Uh, you see the truth through your history, through your myth, through your culture, through your university professors, whatever. You're, you're being told things about the world, and those things cloud your vision as to what's really out there. So how on earth do we get to truth? I mean, how do you come to the place where actually you can get to the pure naked truth? But before I get there, think of it this way. If postmodernism is right, you're something like a chick inside an egg, okay? Only it's an egg you can't peck your way out of. You're in this side, this egg, and you, you know a lot of stuff about inside the egg, but you really don't know much about outside the egg. You don't know anything about the really important questions anywhere, like, who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? Where am I going? I, those big, big questions, right, of life. You're inside the eggshell, and you can't get out. That's a problem. How do you get pure naked? truth. And if you think, well, that's only a, a, a problem for non-believers, maybe not. If you read Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. And for the next six chapters of that book, Solomon is going to take you through every philosophy in the world, and he's going to say, hebel, hebel, hebel. Emptiness, 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 vacuous. And what about Job and his buddies? I like the book of Job. Actually, I like the book of Ecclesiastes and the book of Job. If, if you don't have time to read the whole books, just read the last few verses and you're good. Remember Job and his friend Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and they're doing what? For like 35 chapters, they are having these incredible debates about reality and God and whatever else. And at the end, you come to chapter 38, and all of a sudden there's accountability time, and God looks at them and says, what? What do you really know? Okay, where were you when I... In fact, what can you do? And Solomon says, or rather, Job says, what? Whoa. No response. I have no response. How do we get out of this dilemma? How do we get out of this situation? How? Well, here's what you have to understand, and this is where Christianity becomes a really important thing. Okay? Not everyone lives inside an eggshell. Long before, long before there was an egg, long before there was a shell, long before there was a chick, there was God, right? In the beginning, God. And that's where we start. In the beginning, God. And what we're going to see today, I want us to look at several things regarding God as it relates to this truth issue, because there is nothing more that the world needs today than truth. Truth is being. You remember what John says in John chapter 1, that truth comes into the world, right? 
In the beginning is the Word. The Word's with God. The Word was God. The same as in the beginning with God. All things are made by Him. Without Him is not anything made that was made. In Him is life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not destroy it. And then he reminds us in chapter 3, men love darkness rather than light. But you and I need to know today that there is a being out there who's not trapped in an eggshell and who can send his truth into the dark place. So I want to start with our thinking about God and truth today over in John chapter 17 and verse 3. This is Jesus talking. And he says this. Now this is life. That we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you send. That we may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, who you sent. The only true God. Now, someone's going to say immediately, um, well, there's really no other gods or, or something like that. Maybe. But the Bible talks about other gods, doesn't it? The Bible talks about Chemosh, talks about Dagon, talks about Baal, right? Talks about lots of other gods. And so the question is, as we talk about God today, is he a figment of imagination? Is he fraud? Is he in some way not really what we think he is? I want you to see two things about God today that are really important in this text. He's the only true God. And when I say he's the only true God, he is the only true God because, first of all, he has no equal in authority. No equal in authority, no equal in power. We might put it that way. And if you ask what text would you use for this, this is spoken about so much in the Old Testament, we could spend all morning just talking on this one point. No equal in power, no equal in authority. Go to the book of Exodus, chapters 7 through 10. It's the interesting story about the plagues, right? And the plagues are very interesting. And if you're a scholar this morning, you really love the plagues because they happen in cycles and there's cycles of three. They're incredible. I mean, Moses is a way better writer than anybody ever dreamt he is, but we don't want to get lost in stylistic things, do we? What you need to realize is is that these ten plagues are literally God's attack on the deities of Egypt. One God after another is going to be emasculated in public. That's what's happening. Okay, I'm not going to go through all ten this morning, but just think of the plague of darkness over Egypt. That doesn't make any... Who cares whether it's just dark, right? The sun didn't rise. Well, if you're Egyptian, you really care. Because Ra... The sun god is your big god. And he can't do anything. 
And what about all of the chaos? You remember the leaders of Pharaoh said, you got to stop, you, you got to give in to this guy. The land is a mess. It's wrecked. See, and, and the Egyptians had a god called Ma'at. He was the, the god of order, the god to keep things orderly. And you look at the plagues and say, whatever Ma'at's doing, uh, not in control. The last of the ten plagues, of course, has to do with the death of the firstborn. And Pharaoh himself is God on earth. And he can't even save his own firstborn. What's, what's the story about? It's about God is the God of gods. He's the only true God. The story continues if you go to the book of Daniel, and you go to the first six chapters, which are the six that I love, and I think I understand. Once I get to chapter seven, things start, it gets a little, little more interesting. But in chapters 1 through 6, there is a storyline that goes over and over and over and over. Here's a storyline. No magician, no astrologer, no anybody can tell the king's dream or its interpretation. God can. Not only can God's the dream that that the king has that Nebuchadnezzar has, that dream isn't just a dream, it is God's structure for history to come. You go to the third chapter. You can put men in a furnace of fire. You can turn it up seven times. You can do with it whatever you want. God is the God of gods, and he can rescue Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You go to the fourth chapter, you have the most powerful king on the face of the earth. Everybody trembles at the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He is father and he rose to power so quickly, it was unbelievable. And their kingdom became so powerful that it was almost unimaginable in terms of what it could do. And God humbles him so that he's out there eating grass like a cow, sleeping in dew, and his fingernails are like bird's claws and whatever. He is out of his mind until he confesses his pride. And God restores him. Chapter 5, same kind of story. You know that this is the God of gods who can write on the wall of the palace and say, Mene, Mene, Tekel, you parson. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting this very night. Your kingdom will be required of you. God is a God of gods. And you go to the next chapter, and there's Daniel, who prays three times daily and isn't going to quit because he makes law against praying. And in that lion's den, we know those lions are hungry, really hungry because of what happens after Daniel's rescued. And Darius says, Daniel's God is the God of gods. It's the story of Ezekiel. It's actually the story of Isaiah and Jeremiah. The story about, they switch now to sarcasm. The other stories are just stories about how great God is. Now you get to the place, what about idols? You know, what about idols? And Isaiah and Jeremiah say, yeah, what about idols? 
You get a piece of wood, you kind of carve it, you make it look good. Uh, you take the piece of wood to the left over, you cook your lunch over that, and then you get back to uh, putting gold or silver or whatever you want on the idol, and you, you make this idol look as incredibly uh, good as it can look. It's just got a couple of problems. Can't see. Can't hear. Can't talk. Can't smell. Frankly, it can't do a squat. Nothing. And there's other pictures. One of my favorites is found in Judges 17 and 18. A man by the name of Micah steals 1,100 shekels of money from his mother. Then he gives it back because he feels a little bad. And then she says, oh, you're such a nice boy. I'll give you a couple hundred, uh, you know. And then he goes out and he makes an idol and he hires a priest. And the very last thing you see him doing is this. Somebody comes and steals his idol and his priest. And he's chasing his idol. He's got to rescue his idol. There's got to be something wrong with that picture, right? If if you've got to rescue your God, you're in trouble. And that story continues again over in 1 Samuel chapter 5, where you have the account of, remember, the Ark of the Covenant is called out to battle because the Israelites are treating it like it's a magic charm. If we just had the Ark here, we win. The Ark gets captured, and it gets put in the Temple of Dagon. And the Philistines are like, wow, this is great. Our God is the God of gods. Remember? The next morning, they go into their temple, and there's Dagon flat on his kisser before the Lord. Right? He's laying right on the ground in front of the Ark of the Covenant. It's strange that that happened. They stand him up. The next morning, they go in. This time, God finishes the job. His neck is broken. He's done. God is the God of God. You get the idea? has no equal in power. And he not only has no equal in power, he has no equal in character. You ever read about the Greek gods? Oh my goodness. It's like reading, well, it's reading stuff you shouldn't read, actually, right? I mean, there's, <laughs> there's hardly anything they won't do. I mean, incest, adultery, rape, Murder, deceit, I mean, duplicity of every kind, they don't exactly occupy what we might call the moral high ground. And then there's God. I like the way Isaiah describes him 26 times the Holy One of Israel. What an incredible God he is. What an incredible God he is. I like the way Anselm puts it. God is that being beyond which nothing greater can be conceived. We'll pop up that next slide if you don't mind. There we go. God is that being beyond which nothing greater can be conceived. Now think of this. If you take all of the positive virtues you can think of, make a list of them as long as you want. And if you can extend them to the nth degree, in other words, 
bring them to their fullest place and you put all that stuff together, that's what God looks like. He's beyond comprehension. He is holy. He is good. He is just. I mean, on and on the story goes. Superior in power. Superior in character. And I want to say one other thing. This is the true God who is really true. And when I talk about true, I'm I'm talking about like true blue. I'm talking about character issue again, right? We're not not talking about God just tells the truth. We're talking about there is something so incredible about God that you can trust him. He never, ever changes. He's unchangeable. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about, you know, it's, it's not what God will become. There's a lot of theologians out there today talking about what God's becoming and what he was. The Bible doesn't talk about a God who's becoming anything or was anything. It only talks about a God who is. That's his name, right? That's his name. I am. You never say he was. You never say he's going to be. You just say, I am. He says this, I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi 3.6. First Timothy 3.13, he says, it said, he cannot deny himself. He cannot be who he is. He can't stop being who he is. And further, if you go back to the story in chapter 23 of the book of Numbers where Balaam is trying to curse Israel and he can't, God keeps putting things in his mouth. Balaam keeps trying to say, Balak, don't you get the picture? Don't you get the picture? I can't curse them. Why not? Because God is not a man that he should lie. Or the Son of Man, that he should repent. Can he promise and not fulfill? That's what Steve was talking about earlier. He can't promise and not fulfill. He can't be God and do that kind of stuff. He's the true, unchangeable God. You can bank on him. You can trust him in every way. But we still have a problem. It's nice to know all of these things, right? It really is nice to know these things. It's nice to know that God is all-powerful, and it's nice to know that God is straight as an arrow. But, We're still like a chicken in an eggshell if something else doesn't happen. And this one who is truly God and who is true speaks truth. You may not be able to peck your way out of the eggshell, but God can blast his way He's not confined like we are. 
And as we begin thinking about this, I, I go back to John 17. We started in John 17. Think about another verse in John 17 where Jesus prays for his disciples. What? Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. And all what we find is, is that this God whom we're talking about, here we are trapped in this philosophy of man's the measure of all things. We're enslaved, if you will, by our mental constructs and our myths and our history and all of that. And this God, he's not. And all the time that we live in that situation, he's been doing something, and the author of Hebrews puts it this way, God continually spoke in times past onto the fathers by the prophets. Continually spoke. He spoke face to face with Adam and Eve. He speaks through Abel. He speaks through Enoch. He speaks through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. He speaks through Moses. He speaks through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Joel. Anybody can do that fast anymore? No, we used to do that every Sunday. How fast could you say the Old Testament books? You can, you can do them really fast. It speaks continually. And then finally, he speaks in his son. God, who continually spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son. The word became flesh. And it dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then God speaks to us through this book, this word. I like the way Paul speaks about it over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Verses 6 through 16. He says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. He says, there's stuff out there that you can't even imagine. But God revealed it. God made it known. That's revelation. God not only makes it known, it says, Now the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who among men knows the thoughts of a man except man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And we haven't received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what theologians call illumination, enlightenment. God not only speaks, God not only reveals, God through his spirit brings to light, makes you see the truth that he wants you to see, and it gets even better than that. This is what we speak, verse 13, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truth in spiritual words. This is the inspired word of God. God guarantees the accuracy of his truth. 
As you think about that today, we have a choice, don't we? It's, it's a big choice. It's an ultimate choice. Man is the measure of all things, or God is the measure of all things. Man can figure it out for himself. That's not looking like a likely prospect. Or God can reveal it to you. There is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof is a way of death. There's that picture in Matthew chapter 7 of two gates. One is wide. Everybody is going through that gate. Where everybody means not just a lot of people, but important people. Lady Gaga and who knows who else, right? You see, she fell off the stage last night or the night before. She decided to dance with some guy in the audience, and the next thing you know, they both, they're in the audience. Isn't that incredible? I don't usually watch Lady Gaga. I just happen to be on the news. Yeah, sure, right. You get the point. It looks so good. Everybody's doing it. The end thereof is the way of death. There's another gate. Small. Not a lot of people going there. But the end thereof is life. That's the choice we make. The choice you make is you either believe your own story, the story that you're making up about the universe and why you're here and what you're going to do and how you're going to make yourself significant or whatever, or you live God's story who says, you know what, I created you in my image to reflect my glory, to live in my world, to be a witness to the world. That's your choice. And every one of us will make that choice today in one way or another. Maybe some of us will simply have to change our whole view of life and say, you know what, I've been wrong. I've been thinking about how do I get to God and I've been working it out in my mind. It's in this book. Work it out in this book. If you don't know where to begin, try the Gospel of John. I think Josiah might recommend Mark. I don't care. Start in one of the Gospels. I don't care. Start somewhere. And find your way. Find out the incredible things eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard. It hasn't entered in the mind of man. Those things that God has reserved for those who love him. Our God is perfect. He's powerful. He's personal. He cares about you. He cares about me. Enough to rescue us from darkness. I like the way Isaiah puts it, and I'll just finish with that. Isaiah chapter 9. The light shines, right? 
in the darkness. The glory of the Lord is risen upon us. It's, it's incredible. God sent his son into the world so you could see the truth. He gave you this book so you can read the truth. He gave you his spirit so you can understand the truth. And I want to encourage you today to learn the truth, to accept the truth, to walk in the truth. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your incredible power. You're the only true God. You're not the only true God. You are the the perfect God, perfect in every way. And you are the God who, in spite of all of that, reached down to us, mere human beings, to redeem us and to reconcile us. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.